Hi, I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Welcome to my show, America Can We Talk. Today, we're going to talk about Twitter and why America's leftists suppress speech. A lot of great new information on that. And Dr. Peter McCullough, I believe, is joining us in studio. He's en route. Uh, and I call that segment Dr. Peter McCullough Attacked, Not Silenced. And Elections Have Consequences. America is Awake, Not Woke. And of course, I'll tell you why these stories matter to you. Stay tuned. On America Can We Talk, I talk about election integrity, border security, health care freedom, race relations, energy and tax policy, education policy, free speech and assembly, freedom of religion, and all other issues that touch on the God-given right of every American to life, liberty, and the pursuit of their version of happiness. Stay tuned. America Can We Talk is sponsored by GC Works a Dallas-based company performing advanced technology research in the oil and gas industry. And hello again and welcome to America Can We Talk and to today's First Five. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. There's a lot of angst in the American left today, uh, in the last few days, because Twitter is actually going to begin honoring free speech. Elon Musk has completed the takeover. He has actually fired the board. He's in charge now, and as one little tidbit, one small story that happened, in fact, two quick small stories related to how Twitter is handling things. Uh, one is that the Arizona candidate, the Republican candidate in Arizona for Secretary of State, a huge position in Arizona because it deals with election fraud, overseas elections, the Republican's named Mark Fincham. Mark Fincham of Arizona, GOP candidate for Secretary of State, said yesterday, announced that Twitter had they didn't totally block him. They had set it up so he could post, but no one could comment. So he was complaining, I'm being essentially banned by Twitter. Got someone to reach out to Elon Musk, who said, quote, I'll look into it. And within a day or less, uh, the account was restored. I'm going to come back in a minute to why it matters that the way Twitter tried to ban him. They let him post, but no one could comment. Uh, secondly, as you have likely heard, um, Twitter also has... Um, a surprising, kind of amazing thing, when the uh, takeover of Twitter occurred, Elon Musk is in charge, he of course fired the top team at Twitter, all the leftists who have been censoring Americans for years now, and uh, there's kind of a new game at Twitter where they're actually letting free speech more or less reign. And one thing, way that Twitter, and this is really consequential because I called this segment not just that leftists censor conservatives, but I want to get at why, why they do that, which I'll get to in just one moment. So a lot of people, conservatives on Twitter, would put statements out, put tweets out, comment on news, whatever they were doing. And they had, you know, on Twitter, if you're not on Twitter, you follow people. And they can follow you back. They can comment on what you say. They can make fun of what you say. They can agree. They can, you know, do a lot of things. Well, one way Twitter suppresses conservative messages is to tamp down on the number of people, the followers, that conservatives have, serious conservatives have, people who are active on Twitter. So, for example, uh, on Twitter, there was a, um, the, one of the best examples, Marjorie Taylor Greene, a very outspoken conservative member of Congress, uh, had really was surprised over time why she didn't have as many followers as she thought she would, and Elon Musk takes over, Twitter forced to 
be honest, that's all they're being asked to do is to be honest, uh, she had an amazing gain. October 27th, she gained 1,995 followers in one day on Twitter. By October 28th, after Musk takeover is confirmed, she then had 41,520 new followers with a further 24,287 arriving the day after. And conservative after conservative experiences, members of Congress, members of the Trump family who hadn't been banned, people on Twitter with conservative messaging all of a sudden had a whole bunch of new followers. And it was not because these people previously had decided not to follow on Twitter and then jumped in and did it. It's because Twitter was repressing how many followers these people had. And I want to talk about what, why that works as a method for the left, which is if you are on the left and you see someone like Hillary Clinton or some leftist, and they seem to have hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of followers, and you see somebody that is a really outspoken conservative, and they have almost no followers, it is a subtle message from Twitter, a subtle message to you that, you know, you're kind of outside the mainstream. There might be something wrong with you if you really like Marjorie Taylor Greene. Look, nobody follows her. Nobody likes her. Uh, same thing has occurred, as I mentioned. Uh, Donald Trump Jr. had more than 76,000 new followers um, shortly after, um, I mean, the numbers go on and on, shortly after the takeover. I'm getting at Twitter, the censoring anti-American left that ran Twitter used many techniques to send the message to the American people that conservatism isn't popular. People don't like these people. They don't like Donald Trump Jr. They don't like Marjorie Taylor Greene. They don't like these Republican Congress members. And if you're not savvy about the news and you take your measure of who's really winning in the war of ideas, you think, well, I guess, you know, really must be Hillary Clinton. She's really popular. AOC, yeah, she's the one. But actually, so Twitter was using this uh, not just to silence. It's bad enough that it was censoring and silencing conservatives, but it's also sending a message to the public. The other aspect I mentioned a moment ago related to Mr. Fincham, uh, Mark Fincham in Arizona, was one way you learn things on social media, if you read not just Twitter, but any sort of social media, someone posts something, and then comments follow. It's really kind of fun to read the comments sometimes. I mean, on the one hand, there are really funny answers. I mean, people will comment and respond to a posting and say, you know, some, make some analogy you hadn't thought of. They'll make a joke. They'll, they'll make some little bit snarky reference. The point is, what is occurring in the comment section is protected First Amendment speech. It's the robust exchange of ideas. It is a conveyance, whether it's through serious commentary and people will paste in links in the comments to say, well, I don't believe that because I read such and such. People use this as a means of communication. So what Twitter was doing by tamping down on the number of followers or in Fincham's case, not letting comments flow, was they're making it impossible for the average American citizen to really participate in the American political conversation, my, one of my favorite terms, the American political conversation, really making it impossible to engage in this robust exchange of ideas that the First Amendment is all about. The other big news on this subject, and it's really important to understand this, is it's bad enough if Twitter was run by left-wingers who don't think that conservatives should get to speak, because that's really what they think. Conservatives should not get to speak. They can make their defense. This is a private company. We don't have to let you speak. And, you know, you can go a lot of directions on that thought. 
I don't, I used to buy into that. I don't anymore. They are the, they are the modern means of communication. They're, it's kind of like a, a newspaper, other vehicles. It is the common means, the popular means of communication in America. So I would like to find some lawful way to tamp down on them. But on top of that whole issue, there is a, what was discovered recently, and I really, I can't take a long time telling you about it, what was discovered recently in connection with a FOIA request and also uh, with a piece of litigation, and this is confirming something people thought for a long time, which is the complicity of the social media giants, the Facebook and YouTube and Twitter and Instagram, these folks were actually complicit with the United States government, and in particular, the Department of Homeland Security, and in which they were conversing off record, you know, out of the public eye about what opinions should be allowed, how do we go about silencing the opinions we don't want you to hear. And this started actually during the Obama era and was a, a massive, massive effort occurring prior to the 2020 elections. Regular conversations, regular meetings happening between, in fact, uh, there was a great quote. Uh, by the way, I want to remind you folks, Everything I talk about today, you can read articles related to it on our website, americacanwetalk.org, americacanwetalk.org, on the homepage under shows, drop down list of links, I link to this article, which is called, well, it's a conspiracy no more, leaked DHS, Department of Homeland Security documents show portal connections where government officials back channel instructions to social media engineers and conduct surveillance. So not only are they directing what messages the American public can hear, they are keeping track of the comments you make, and even when you think you're private messaging your friends saying, hey, I'm running late, or you know, don't tell anybody about blah, 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 you're being monitored not just by the social media company you're using, but actually by the government. And so this, this is just astonishing revelations coming out. Prior to the 2020 elections, tech companies including Twitter, Facebook, Reddit, Discord, Wikipedia, Microsoft, LinkedIn, and Verizon, media met on a monthly basis with the FBI. I should just, right there, the FBI, our government is using the, old, the basic means of communication in America to get after their political enemies, to tailor messages. Uh, it, it actually, this is even according to NBC News, the meetings are part of an initiative still ongoing between the private sector and the government to discuss how firms should handle misinformation during the election. I am not going to read the whole article to you, although it is tempting. I urge you to read it at our website. Again, the, the article it relates directly to this link between the DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, um, which is a federal agency, your tax dollars at work, communicating with the social media companies and essentially blocking you from information they don't want you to have, shaping your opinions. And, um, you know, they, they act, make the point that this kind of ongoing uh, connection is really the disinformation board the DHS put together, and then they had, because of so much public uproar, they dropped it, but it's really what they've been doing for a long, long time. Their conclusion was surveillance of domestic communication to include surveillance of all social media platforms is now the primary mission of the Department of Homeland Security. I'll make one last point before we go to our guest today. Yesterday I was telling you how one week from yesterday, so this coming Tuesday, election day, is a vitally important election. It's not really just between Republicans and Democrats or conservatives or liberals. It's choosing whether you want to have America the free 
rooted in the constitutional promises, the Bill of Rights, the promises of our Declaration of Independence. You want that America that is rooted in freedom, God-given freedom to each individual. You want that America, or do you want the America where the left is taking, taking us right now? It, the left which doesn't enforce the border, which spies on the citizens, which keeps you from knowing information you want to know, which blocks people they don't like from, from communication with others. These are such fundamental ideas about the protection of the future of freedom in America. That's really what's on the ballot. It's, you know, I, I said yesterday, in fact, our guest yesterday, um, I, after I did my little riff at the start of the show, my first five about the importance of this election, and Senator Bob Hall happened to be here, and I finished my little riff of, you know, it's either America the free or tyranny and Marxism. It's either freedom of speech or speech controlled by government and all that. And what he, his first comment was, it's kind of between America based on God-given freedoms, it's God-given order, or is it rule of man and the rule of people who want to control every aspect of your life, it's God and not God. And I'll tell you something, I talk to a lot of people who are national security experts, they're immigration experts, there are so many Americans coming out recognizing that we're not going to solve where we are with Amer in America with just better policy or better elected officials. There's going to be a need to a, a deeper yearning in the part of the American people to return to the fundamental idea of America, which is recited in the Declaration of Independence, that we all are created equal, that we have God-given rights, as I always add, simply because you were born, period, because you're born to life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, and everything else promised in our Bill of Rights. That's what's on the ballot. Um, we're, I'm going to talk later about the ballot today a little bit more, but that's what's on the ballot next week in America is you want to hold on to America or do you want to surrender to the left that's already engaged in taking enormous steps in this first two years of Biden administration to take away your God-given liberty. And that, my very fine friends, is today's First Five. So I was telling you about a guest joining us. I thought this was a great segue into uh, his story. We have Dr. Peter McCullough, um, who was on the show just a not too long ago in relation to a book that he'd co-authored, and I'm going to show you the book. I've stuffed all my papers and it's kind of heavy. Okay, so the book is The Courage to Face COVID-19, Preventing Hospitalization and Death While Battling the Biopharmaceutical Complex. This is the book we talked about in the show recently, and today, uh, Dr. McCall, I'm very grateful, was available to be here today uh, and to talk about a few things that have developed uh, since the time that this book came out, or I guess while it was coming out. Um, but by quickest introduction, I'll introduce you uh, to him. Uh, he's an internationally renowned uh, internist, cardiologist, epidemiologist. Uh, he's an extraordinarily prominent doctor who has testified before the Congress, before various state legislatures, uh, an advocate for simply the freedom to practice medical care, health care, um, without government, undue government intrusion and control, uh, was ex extraordinarily brave during the, when the onset of COVID-19, when people became alarmed about where we we're headed as a country and the danger, what, how much danger we're really in. Uh, very, very brave in speaking up about what was occurring uh, at the hands of CDC and the federal government agencies, NIH, and the taking away of healthcare freedom. He just has been a leader from the beginning. So we're going to talk about well, where things are in his life today. So hi, Dr. McCullough. Hi, thanks for having me. Wow, I've never heard so much passion and urgency in your monologue. And don't you think we need it? <laughs> if there's ever a time that America can galvanize, it has to be this time and galvanize around freedom. We're seeing extraordinary, uh, an extraordinary theft 
of civil liberties. Right. The other thing that, uh, I think you know Senator Hall. I know you know Senator Hall. The other thing he mentioned when I was into my little riff was just look what happened on January 6th and the follow-up. All the people sitting in jail, no due process, as though we don't have a constitution, as though we don't have due process rights, and seemingly courts not very concerned about that. Corruption has spread through the court system like wildfire. You know, I'm going to be with Senator Hall Friday afternoon, University of Texas, Dallas campus. We are having a symposium on pandemic response and then a press briefing. It's going to be very important. The elections talk about the Department of Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs, chaired by Senator Ron Johnson. Probably not a more critical re-election campaign than it is in Wisconsin right now yep. because uh, control over that committee, and I've testified twice uh, before that committee, if it has significant power, subpoena power, to start to, in, to initiate investigations in terms of what's going on. Yeah, enormously consequential. Well, you know, I up until two hours ago, what I was thinking was I wanted to run through everything you did during the time when COVID unfolded, and, and I realized we don't have time. No. Yeah, I mean, if you, unless you can stay like six hours. <laughs> can you do that? No. No, it's <laughs> too much. It's too urgent. What's on the table right now is uh, extraordinary steps. Uh, doctors appear to be the first target. I think nurses and other healthcare professionals are right behind them. Uh, there have been a, there's a, a chilling sequence of events. We should start in California with California AB 2098. This is a bill introduced and now signed by Gavin Newsom. It doesn't go into law until January 1st. But this says that a doctor cannot deviate from the government narrative on COVID-19. The doctor cannot render an independent uh, opinion or subject to losing one's license to actually not be able to practice in California anymore. The doctors are so uneasy. They don't know what they can say, what they can't say. The government's n not given a script. We don't follow scripts anyway. COVID has become so complicated with all the array of drugs, things we can do, post-COVID syndromes. Uh, this has created an incredible sense of anxiety in California. Two doctors, Mark McDonald and Jeff Barkey, are suing, uh, and they are going to try to get this to be stopped before it goes into law. I don't know. I know Mark McDonald. I don't know the other one. Good for them. Um, and I actually, on that point, just to be clear with our listeners, what you're describing, the California legislation, has that ever occurred to your knowledge, that, that concept of the government making a law, like you described, saying, in this particular disease or and, and, the, and the related diseases, you can't do anything unless you're told by, and I don't even know what the authority is, but who, what, what who tells them what they're allowed to do, and has that ever happened before? It's never happened before, and it's important to understand doctors render opinions. We render opinions. In fact, patients get opinions. They get second opinions, but they are ex exactly that. They're opinions. And for the first time now, doctors are told they can't render an opinion. It is so alarming because, as you say, people seek second opinions all the time. And there are amazing stories of people who got a really bad diagnosis and told no hope, and somebody else said, you know, probably we could try this, and it worked. And, and this is now specifically on COVID, which yeah. has been this illness that's dominated our news for three years now. And I can tell you as a practicing doctor, it's enormously complicated. We have products now. We have long-acting monoclonal antibodies, short-acting monoclonal antibodies, various antivirals, corticosteroids, other drugs we use in combination. Now there's post-COVID syndromes. There's post-vaccine syndromes. It's a complicated field, and it's impossible for the government to script a narrative. 
A, it's, that's bad practice. We have no idea who's going to actually be trying to craft this narrative, and then how to follow it. It's going to be impossible. You know, I was going to wait uh, this question toward the end, and maybe I'll just plant it and then come back to it later, but who's driving all of this? I mean, who's driving the ideology that would say California legislature would pass a law like that? And But we can come back to that. You want to go on? Uh, you know, I'm going to think about it. I, I have some ideas, but let's let's. Okay, let's I, I it. think it's important to think about that. So back to your particular case, you have been amazingly brave. Uh, you spoke on our show. I think it was almost it was over a year ago. You were on my mm -hmm. show first time, and you've been several times since then with your book, and you've been outspoken just about the idea that doctors, because of what their training, their education, their practice, they were really stifled in their ability uh, and their comfort to prescribe what people needed or you, you thought they should try. You had, they called the re-engineering of it or the, the use of existing therapies which were cast aside in favor of the vaccine. And it just, you've been brave all along and it's brought you to the point where you've now gotten the attention of some of the medical authorities. And so I, I kind of want to jump into where you are on that, if, if that's. You know, it, it should never have been an issue. Doctors have always had a duty to treat and if they don't treat this illness, a duty to refer. But when a patient has a potentially fatal illness or illness that can land them in the hospital, the doctors had the responsibility. And in communities across the United States, some doctors stepped forward and they crafted a community standard of care. The community standard of care is what doctors find to be useful in treating patients and it's not the same in every community. Uh, an example would be back pain. Some communities it's conservative, chiropractor, other things, other communities it's back surgery. It, there's a wide array of ways that doctors treat patients. For COVID-19, it was no different. Doctors found ways to treat patients. We worked with a variety of different drugs over time. And the community standard of care came into being. What happened was the state medical boards, for the first time in history, tried to interfere with the standard of care and say, well, you can't use this drug, you can't use that drug. And then the federal government, the, uh, the CDC, NIH, and FDA, tried to actually proscribe the community standard of care. That is off the rails, it's never happened before, and it threw medicine into a spiral. Exactly, yeah, the three entities you mentioned, CDC, NIH, and FDA, the third one? Yeah, uh, those, we talk about this, I think, more than once on this show, and uh, in your book, you're kind of getting at it, but there is the question of how much the pharmaceutical companies who are manufacturing vaccines, manufacturing what they want to sell, are directing traffic within the federal agencies, or there, uh, there is a, they call it, use the term agency capture, where the agencies aren't necessarily looking out for the health of the patient or the rights of a doctor. They're acting more to protect the pharmaceutical company's agenda. Do you think that's fair? Is well, that let's, happening? let's just yeah. take government to healthcare delivery. By declaring a worldwide and national emergency, then there was the ability to create countermeasures. And the countermeasures were government actions that could allow large flows of money from the government to recipients, including healthcare systems. So if the government says we want you to follow a particular approach, and here's a lot of money, every healthcare system received these, every big medical groups received these. Then countermeasures actually went to in vitro diagnostics to make various tests. And then countermeasures then went to the vaccine suppliers. And that where that's where the doors of the treasuries opened and money started to flow to the company making vaccines. We currently have Pfizer, Moderna, um, uh, uh, Johnson, Johnson, and now Novavax outside the United States, AstraZeneca, Sinovac, Coronavac. Uh, but worldwide money started to flow in this umbrella of an emergency 
and there was no checks and balances, none whatsoever. The, the most recent example of the countermeasure was the pre-purchase of the bivalent vaccines before they were even studied. And then it turns out they were just studied in a small number of rodents. There were no human studies. Pre-purchasing before we even know if they work or they're safe. I'm sorry, you call that the bivalent, what did you say, the bivalent? Bivalent boosters, right. Okay, well that, you know, in America, I would tell you that the average person, at least in my life growing up, the average person, you, number one, have inherent trust in your doctor, in your hospital, and even all the way to the federal agencies, you always assume that these are good people and they may have difference of opinion on treatments or something, but they're good people, rightly motivated, and, and they don't have a bad agenda. But when you're talking about releasing, pre-purchasing, releasing this, this vaccine that wasn't ever tested, there, that's, it should raise the hairs in the back of your neck. I mean, it should make you really alarmed, right? Everyone should be concerned. Everyone should be concerned with this idea that a doctor was not a able to freely prescribe what the doctor wanted to prescribe. There should have been a, 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 um, a, a, a pharmaceutical regimen, a formulary, if you will. If I wanted to use a particular monoclonal antibody, I shouldn't have the government keep yanking these out of production. The monoclonal antibodies were some of the most useful products that we had. Then there was giant squabbles over um, hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, but also budesonide, prednisone, uh, colchicine. And, and the fact that the, for the first time in medicine, a doctor's freedom to fully take care of a patient was impaired. And Americans suffered because this was not widely recognized. There was large numbers, probably two-thirds of 10 million hospitalizations and two-thirds of a million deaths were avoidable. This is a giant, giant crime. Say that again. Two-thirds of hospitalizations and... Two-thirds of 10 million hospitalizations and two-thirds of a million deaths were avoidable. And, and th that's based on three sets of Senate testimony that I gave twice in the U.S. and once in the Texas Senate where I, where I landmarked where we were because there was a learning curve. Now, going forward, our treatments are so effective, the hospitals have been empty of respiratory COVID for a long time. Right. Well, these are the kind of statements you made that got the attention, apparently, of the American Board of Internal Medicine, which I will turn to in one moment. But I really want to commend you again for your bravery in saying those things, because I think there are doctors who recognize it, and they don't want to be the one to step up and speak up, and because they, they do love practicing medicine, they do fear losing their right to practice or do fear some other punishment. And, and the, what, so the doctors who've been speaking up, the America's Frontline Doctors, Simone Gold, Richard Bartlett, I mean, many of them that we, uh, we both know, um, spoke up and it was at some cost. I mean, for all of you to get criticism from the government, criticism from your state medical board, threats of losing physicians. And, and you know, I, I asked myself, anyone or asked people who have said to me, well, why would Dr. Fauci lie? Why would he be misstating things? I always go back to, why would any of you brave doctors, what possible motive do you possibly have except truth, except truth? Maybe. All we're trying to do, all I was trying to do is help my patients, but we have a playing field in academic medicine and it's called peer-reviewed publication. I have 60 peer-reviewed papers, either as, a, as an author in the author block or in the investigative block of the authorship, including the seminal papers on how to treat COVID. I did everything the right way. I went out and I devised these approaches working with others. I did the best I could to test them to prove that they were safe and that they worked. And I operated upon that. That's what we do. There's, you, you can't do better than that. N none of, of my statements have been conjecture. 
All of them have been grounded in the science. America knows when they see me on national TV, I'm always citing the first author and the source, the source of data. And what happened was, is when this was raised to the point of various boards, Senator Ron Johnson got involved. And Ron Johnson said, listen, come out of your offices and let's have a discussion. Let's, because there are always different ways to interpret the data. And the boards, and this we're talking about American Board of Family Medicine, uh, not American Board of Internal Medicine, American Medical Association has teamed up with these. No discussion. They, will, they refuse to discuss things in a face-to-face -face open forum. Okay, I am going to get into this uh, American Board of Internal Medicine in a moment. I like the expression you used a moment ago, this umbrella, um, kind of umbrella over the whole treatment of COVID, this, this uh, emerge, this. Um, it's emergency. It's emergency countermeasures. Yeah. But, for example, I mean, you mentioned money and the way that the, uh, some of the measures took, took place. For example, people put in the hospital, you, the hospitals got rewarded by CDC for finding COVID cases, for diagnosing them, for having that recorded as the cause of death. I mean, issue after issue, the federal agency that was supposed to be primarily protecting America's health and safety was rewarding the finding of COVID and rewarding hospitals for particular protocols in the use of COVID. Is, is that, has that ever happened before? Never. And not only that, but the most glaring example was the reward for the use of remdesivir. Remember remdesivir was the first uh, intravenous polymerase inhibitor introduced and the largest study was done by the World Health Organization and they've done a very good job in organizing the data. They declared in November of 2020, do not use remdesivir for hospitalized patients because it does not help them and it can cause kidney injury and liver injury in some patients. It contributes in the causal pathway of death. And the fact the United States ignored the WHO and also the European Society of Critical Care signed on to that. United States government, HHS, ignored that and gave a bonus to American doctors using this drug, which we knew wasn't going to help a single American, in fact, hurt them. In fact, hurt them. I had uh, another doctor on my show, I can't remember which one it was, who just said they began referring to it at remdesivir as run, death is near. I mean, they, they knew that it was bad, dangerous. The studies that were pointed to by Dr. Fauci showed it doesn't work. Well, now there's a class action lawsuit in California. Hundreds of families who've lost loved ones, remdesivir involved, and now a lead attorney Watkins out there, class action lawsuit. And, and you're going to see this. Uh, now, it's not malpractice, but there's personal injury. There's other things. W when a large international government body says, don't use a product, boy, we better take that seriously. And when I testified in the Texas uh, HHS, I said, when the WHO put that out, the HHS should have been calling emergency meetings in Texas and asking the question, who's using remdesivir in Texas hospitals and get it off the shelves? Everyone yes. fell flat. That's what you would do if you yeah. actually, if your goal was to protect the health of patients. Yeah. Okay, so I want to turn. So you know, it's funny. I don't. You maybe didn't think there was a huge segue between my first topic and this, but this whole concept of Twitter and the ruling elite telling Americans not just what you can and can't hear, but they're really trying to save Americans is you don't get to think, you don't get to read, you don't get to process, you don't get to compare opinions. You're going to do as we're directing you. And it's the same attitude out of the powers that be in medicine. No thinking. No, and it's centered on a particular word, and you said it in your monologue, misinformation. Misinformation, the word actually originated around the 1500 time frame. 2018, a major newspaper, I think it was in New York or Washington, claimed that misinformation 2018 was word of the year. 
It was one oh, really? of the best before <laughs> yeah. COVID, and it was actually in the construct of political, politicizing things. And it's, it's, a, it's a word used in propaganda. It is a clear propaganda tool. If someone can declare misinformation, that means that they actually hold information. So they hold the truth or they hold a moral authority over someone else. And I can tell you as a doctor, I'm in my fourth decade of doing this, most published person in my field in the world in history, I am telling America misinformation does not exist in medicine. It's not in any medical textbooks. It doesn't exist. We've seen it appear in some journal articles, politically oriented journal articles. And the reason why it doesn't exist, because in medicine, there simply are observations, scientific data, and there's always multiple points of view, interpretive points of view. Somebody doesn't, you don't have one doctor holding the truth and another doctor not holding right, the truth. It's not like in multiplication tables when there's only right, one right answer. Yeah, it, it's. Good point. Yeah. Okay, so this so at this point, this year, May of this year, you got a letter from the American Board of Internal Medicine, um, which is now, I'll use the acronym ABIM, uh, Community Physicians. They basically, they said, you're certified in internal medicine and in cardiovascular disease. You've made numerous widely reported and disseminated public statements about the purported dangers of or lack of justification for the COVID-19 vaccines. For example, then they run through some things you said in testimony. They actually give quotes. They, uh, they another point of contention they had was you have um, reported, reportedly stated that as many as 50,000 Americans may have died due to COVID-19 vaccines in the first half of 2021. In addition, uh, you submitted a, re a, um, a declaration in support of plaintiffs um, declared after noting your certification uh, that COVID-19 presents a negligible risk for adults younger than the age of 60. The asymptomatic spread of 2020, um, uh, uh, asymptomatic spread in 2021, 18,000 COVID-19 vaccine deaths reported and mass vaccination is associated with at least 39-fold increase in annualized vaccine deaths. So they, they took your own words and various statements you made and used it as a basis to threaten you. I mean, threaten your... And so what I loved about what you did, and this is what... This is what people do when they're wrongly accused and they're sure of what they're doing. Okay, I actually read your declaration. You sent back a declaration uh, by you in response to the American Board of Internal Medicine uh, notice the potential disciplinary action, and you responded point by point by point. So, and you have, by the way, and there are, I mean, it's lengthy, it's got footnotes. So you responded to everything they said, that they were saying constituted wrongdoing their part, and you were factual, and your facts are accurate. So, I, I mean, I'm not being smart aleck, but why, when you submit this back to them, why wouldn't their answer be, okay, never mind, sorry? Well, you saw in the response, there was a dispute, and then there was an important phrase. It said, nothing you said convinced us. Nothing you <laughs> said convinced us. I thought that was uh, a, a, an interesting remark. Now, the people reviewing this, none of these are experts uh, in COVID-19. None of them are uh, recognized as uh, uh, world-renowned physicians at all. There's three attorneys on the committee. They're certainly not doctors. And they're trying to render a judgment. First off, this is ex post fast facto. This is back in 2021. This is water under the bridge. By the time we, we get to more rebuttals on this, it's going to be two years old. Second point is that uh, one of the centerpieces of this actually has to do with risk of COVID-19. So risk of COVID-19 is for the next person who gets it, what's their risk of dying? What they've done is they've said, out of all the deaths that have occurred, there are proportions that have occurred in these different age strata. 
that's not risk. They've actually, you know, so in a sense, we have a dispute over the understanding of risk. This is exactly why Senator Johnson said, let's come out and discuss this. Let's discuss right. this as opposed to try to put one another in jeopardy. Obviously, they're a committee. They hold the boards. I've spent six years of my life, three years for internal medicine, three years in cardiology. I slept in hospitals every third or fourth night for six years of my life. I've taken four internal medicine board exams. I've taken three cardiology exams. My clinical care is not in question. My clinical care and my performance is flawless. The boards, their only role is to qualify me as a qualified doctor. They have no role in crafting a COVID review of public statements. They actually expanded their scope specifically on COVID, I think, to go after me and others. I'm going to get again to my question, what in the world is driving this? But back to this point. So you responded to everything they said, and you laid out, as you say, your opinions, what you testified to, what you wrote in declarations, are based on years of practice, of passing examinations, of understanding, studying COVID, studying data, watching what happens when people get early intervention, early treatment, right. all the things you learned. I mean, they should be celebrating you. But what they're trying to say is, I mean, this is, it gets back to the Twitter now due to my, my first slide. You can't say things we don't approve of. That's what they're essentially telling well, you. Well, actually, bigger than that is infringement, meaning most of the statements that they are disputing were made under oath. And I can tell you, as a doctor or a nurse or an engineer, a lawyer, when one testifies under oath, it's the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help you God. So I am telling America and the state of Texas, I'm doing the best I can. I'm doing the best I can. I'm fielding questions from senators, okay? I'm doing the best I can. There, I have no intent of misleading America or misleading Texas. It's a rapidly evolving pandemic. I'm citing the literature from memory the best I can. I submit uh, for the U.S. Tenet, I, Senate, I actually submit written uh, yeah. testimony. Yep. This is a highly vetted uh, set of circumstances. So if one actually, as a citizen, is helping their country and testifying under oath, now I'm subject to professional reprisal for that activity? It's outrageous. Well, I mean, their reprisal is really, in, in my view, it is just designed to message to you, send a message to you, do not, do not challenge what we have now. It's, it's like the Ministry of Truth has spoken. Do not challenge the stated protocol about COVID, the stated views about the vaccines. Nobody gets to say this. Well, it's a, ABIM has actually never published their views on COVID. They've never published a guideline. They've actually <laughs> never published. So how could I possibly even know what they would agree to or what they wouldn't agree to? This is ex post facto. They facto. They're saying, listen, after the fact, we now disagree. And what Ron Johnson and actually Senator Bob Hall wrote them as well, as well as many, many physicians wrote them. So listen, let's just come out and discuss this. Let's discuss the data. How many people actually have died after the vaccines? Now, you, you know, I quoted a number from a federal lawsuit yep. from the Center for Medicare and Medicaid the number, Services. By the, way? How the, many? the number from CMS, from the extrapolation from the CMS data was 50,000 died after the vaccine. The number the CDC currently holds of Americans is getting close to 15,000 people died of the vaccine. The question is, how much are the CDC data underreported? Meaning, you know, if you right. can't find the vaccine card, so, it, so the, 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 the unknown factor is the underreporting factor. But whatever it is, we're arguing about two large, unacceptable numbers. 
which we've never tolerated with other vaccines. Nothing close to other yeah. vaccines have led this, right. to this many deaths. Okay, right. I was going to. I want to share with our listeners. So you you had this letter from them, and they're basically they're threatening to pull your certifications. Is that accurate? And what does that mean? Yes. Yeah, that's what does that mean. You. That means six years of my life are erased. My residency didn't count. My fellowship didn't count. That's very important. Six years. That means all these board certifications exams that I've successfully passed, none of those count. That means I can no longer be a doctor and actually bill for services and get paid by insurance companies, and I can't hold hospital privileges. That's the consequence. Can't hold hospital privileges. I mean, for in, in any in any instance. I mean, okay, so no hospital privileges, um, and you can't essentially. I mean, they're not pulling your medical license, but it's close to that same. Con- uh, consequence is that right absolutely it's it is as severe as it gets it's as severe as and not only that but there's no now there's what's the pathway do i have to redo my residency and fellowship do i have to redo examinations how do i ever get restored the only thing they've said is well you have till november 18th to submit an appeal i assume you're going to do that i'm going to appeal but the now the questions are you're appealing yes or no. Are you going to have an attorney yes or no? And are you going to call witnesses yes or no? So now this has already been consumptive. I'm a busy doctor. This is already consuming an enormous amount of time and resources, and it's really going to ramp up. Okay. I'll tell you something else for our, for our listeners also. Um, I did. I mentioned to you, I, I don't know if I can put this up on our website, but the declaration that uh, was submitted um, in response by Dr. McCullough in response to his uh, notice in the American Board of Internal Medicine, very detailed, very specific, very uh, citing to irrefutable information. But in addition to that, you know, the, the things I noticed in the file, there was a doctor uh, – Numerous doctors wrote something to the um, to the board, the American Board of Internal Medicine, saying this is outrageous, this is ridiculous. Uh, Dr. Pierre Corey is also part of this. Okay, he's the one that got me booted off of YouTube. I just want to point out, not really. <laughs> I mean, I played something he said, and that was it. I'm done with YouTube. But anyway, but one thing, other thing that happened for our listeners, there are letters from uh, Senator Johnson to this board. Uh, telling him this is ridiculous and inappropriate, um, and a letter from uh, Senator Bob Hall. But there was another letter. This is a 49-page document. When I first saw it, it was 49 pages, and this is written by a long list of doctors. When I first saw it, I thought it was 49 pages of explaining why this board should not go after Dr. Peter McCullough. It's not. It's 10 pages of very specific points why it's absurd and ridiculous and wrong for them to be threatening his uh, certifications. And the entire last 39 pages is a list, to, you know, two columns on every page of the doctors signing on, doctors and other professionals signing on. I'm getting at the medical community is on your side. I Absolutely. Mean, the, the vast, so, so this is a, a board that isn't necessarily made up of doctors licensed to practice. It's a board coming after you, making you unable to practice medicine based on their cherry-picking some statements, which mostly were, were in any case justifiable you have actual doctors practicing coming at your defense and yet they don't back down well there's no due process there's no fairness remember this is very important this is part of american civil liberties uh, since when can an organization effectively hold a kangaroo court do you know the um the very first meeting that they had the the credentials uh, review committee i asked to attend it i said i want to attend my own meeting no not allowed so I couldn't attend and even listen to my own meeting yeah. where they were going to discuss uh, 
you know, a variety of activities. Now, I wasn't alone. Dr. Pierre Corey, uh, Paul Merrick, who suffered. Paul Merrick is the, is the most published person in critical care in the history of medicine. He has been uh, stripped of his license in Virginia. He's oh been fired of his job. He's had his hospital privileges uh, removed. Uh, and he's also under this review. Pierre Corey uh, has been stripped of three jobs as a critical care doctor. He's under review. Uh, uh, previously under review, uh, Dr. Denise Sibley. This is extraordinary. Denise Sibley is an internist in Tennessee. She has worked with the Tennessee legislature and created new creative ways, signed into law, for her to have collaborative agreements with pharmacies to prescribe ivermectin. That's all she did, and she That's did the it. That's the basis of the. Yes, she did oh it above board with the legislature. Everything I did was above board in filmed, uh, transcripted testimony in the U.S. It's as transparent as it can get. None of us have made a single statement that's anywhere close to being irresponsible. In fact, we've been called upon by our country to help Americans, and this is what's happened. Dr. McCullough, I know I, I asked this in the beginning, but I mean, this the absurdity of this, the absurdity of uh, Dr. Fauci, again, very recently talking about maybe we have to have masks. Uh, we have CDC saying young children, they should add the COVID vaccine as kind of protocol to enter school, which is, we've been down this path before. But this is, you know, maybe you can fall, this falls under that mass psychosis. You know, Peter, uh, was it Mark McDonald talks about this, that mass uh, hypnosis, psychosis, whatever he calls it, you know what I'm talking about? The idea that we have, we have some portion of America so hypnotized into fear or that they just go along with anything. But this, this entity that actually determines whether you can hold on your certifications and they are unimpacted, unswayed by all the doctors saying you're right. What is going on? The roots of this, I believe, actually are governmental. And if one was to just look at this whole area of biological threats, and that's where COVID is, from a military perspective, yes. there is a deep history. The NIH has a division to actually study this called BARDA. The yes. military has a division called DARPA. It's easy to find. DARPA has documents and prospectuses that say, dating back to 2011, 2012, stating that they can solve a pandemic in 60 days with messenger RNA vaccines. DARPA. Not Pfizer and Moderna. This is long before Pfizer and Moderna are involved. This is DARPA. This is DARPA. When the COVID-19's vaccines roll out, the very first announcement come from Alex Azar, who's the uh, uh, Secretary of Health and Human Services and the U.S. Department of Defense. The COVID-19 vaccine program is like a military program. Remember the anthrax vaccine and the various uh, uh, types of vaccines. They're typically organized for the military. This whole program was rolled out like a military program, but except it's for the American people. And because it has that countenance mm. to it, that you're gonna take it, and this is an emergency, and don't you dare say anything against this military okay. program. So why would the government be driving that just to get you vaccinated, so what? I mean, I mean, why are they so driven to do that? I, they, I'm agreeing with you. They, they have to explain themselves. All I'm telling you is that this is acting like a military operation. Every time these officials have been called to have any conversation, when I testified in the U.S. Senate on January 24th this year, we had 
We had chairs for every single one of them. Show up and let's talk about this. Explain to doctors why we're doing this. None of them will show up. You know, I was going to go to a positive thing in the end, which I will in a minute, about how there is some opening up. I mean, you have the state of New York, city of New York said you have to hire back all the employees who are fired. Uh, the country of Italy is hiring back with back pay all of their health care workers who got fired for being unvaccinated. So it's like the public's waking up and, you know, the pressure from the public to say we don't want to have this forced on us. And, you know, New York and, and other places are, are now dropping it. But so if that's all happening, Italy is recognizing it. Uh, many other countries are, how are we stuck in America where we are? I we're, mean, We're stuck partially, and it's the will of the people. It's the heterogeneity of what you see around the country, which is so extraordinary. It's the same virus. It's the same viral threat. Why would one school system mandate that children have to take a vaccine and the, another school system say, we don't need to do that at all? Yeah. And, and so it's, a, it's a, and country to country, by the way, there's tremendous heterogeneity in terms of, particularly on the vaccines. Um, I can tell you, Something's in the minds of people, and, and I, I recently had this, I think, come to, to focus when I went on um, TV with Michelle Tafoya, a formerly uh, uh, Monday Night Football. We, we love Michelle. Anyhow, we started talking about this, and Aaron Rodgers, quarterback for the Packers, had a known, potentially fatal reaction to polyethylene glycol. He told the Packers, I can't take the vaccine. I can't. The Packers told him, take the vaccine. He says, I can't. I'm going to die. They said, take the vaccine. He goes, I refuse to do it. Well, you have to wear a band. And they did all this, this, this hor these horrible things to Aaron Rodgers. And he gets COVID. He gets the McCullough protocol. He comes to Joe Rogan. He communicates with me. Aaron gets treatment. He gets through it, pays all these fines. I asked Michelle this question. I said, do the Packers not care about their star quarterback? Do they not care? Would they rather see him dead with the vaccine? And she said, Dr. McCullough, she goes, it's hard for me to say this, but yes, they would rather see him dead with the vaccine. Okay. It's extraordinary. It is. It's that mass psychosis mentality. They can't think. They have been, they've had control what they believe uh, through a variety of methods of communication from the government and, and everything coming out is all about fear of the disease and fear of being unvaccinated. And it's like they can't, and this is where I get to back to my, my starting thing today, there is great effort on the part of many people to just control what the public thinks and believes yeah. and knows. And you're just going to salute it. You described a moment ago about DARPA. I have your, I did a lot of reading for today. I have your thing on DARPA too. But I mean, this whole concept of we're going to command the public yeah. on everything and you're going to do it. So my next, you know, I mean, I agree the government's wrapped up in it. I think bio, I think the pharmaceutical companies are wrapped in, uh, wrapped up in it and they're happy making money and the government's can, is, being but it's not pharma driven. This is m what I've really come it to is learn. It's not pharma People driven. People think, oh, it's Pfizer doing this, Moderna, Johnson, Johnson. These are basically marketing shields. They're marketing shields. This okay. is a U.S. government operation. The U.S. government, you know, you're, Pfizer's not, you don't buy this from Pfizer. U.S. government is buying all this stuff. The, the vaccines are manufactured by actually by military contractors. And the, okay. the final fill and finish of the vaccines is actually done by companies you don't even know about. They're not Pfizer and Moderna. We actually don't know what's in these vaccines. Uh, there's no post-production inspection for quality, purity, or safety. Okay. You know, I can't believe the time is racing by, and I want to get this. I mean, honestly, I, I could talk to you for hours. But so in America, I'm, I mean, I assume you're going to have to challenge this, uh, you know, challenge to your credentials and other doctors involved in all this. But how do we get 
healthcare freedom back? How do we get back to what America always the premier healthcare uh, standard of the world was America's, even after Obamacare, it was still the premier. So how do we, it's, it's like this psychosis, this, this uh, evil has infiltrated, I mean, if the government's motivating it or driving it, okay, that's a problem, but the healthcare community has to be standing up, the, the, not just individual doctors, but the uh, corporate healthcare, the state medical boards, the, even the federal agencies have got to be standing up and saying we're going to restore healthcare freedom. So how do we get there? We need a big dose of humility from our executives in healthcare systems. You know, Houston Methodist, a year ago, was firing their employees if yeah. they wouldn't take the vaccine, even if they had fatal reactions to the vaccine or pregnant or what have you. Now, this year, they dropped their vaccine mandates with no discussion. They just drop it, no they discussion. No discussion. Okay. But there should be a big apology. You know what? We're sorry. We are wrong. Come on back. We're going to hire things back. The biggest point of tension right now is the military. I can tell you, there's a, there's a letter from Congress, 47 congressmen sent it to um, uh, the, uh, the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, and said, drop the mandates, drop the vaccines, hire back all the soldiers with back, back pay. Back pay, yeah. I had two, um, over the last couple of weeks, two different, uh, they were both senior cadets at the Coast Guard Academy who were kicked out after, I mean, not a disciplinary problem, no issues at all, right. because they wouldn't do the vaccine. And these are people, young people, patriotic enough yes. to want to go to the Coast Guard Academy. They wanted to make it a career. They both did. They had visions of you know, living their life in, the, in this military style, kicked out because of the vaccine. They both had very heartfelt, lengthy written out religious objections. I was saying, I didn't think it should have to be religious. I think you ought to just be able to say, Personal I don't choice. want this vaccine. Yeah. But they both had that, and it wasn't even given a whiff of consideration. Mind-blowing. It's just, nope, you're out. And they're out. They're out of the Coast Guard Academy. So here's my wrap-up question. Yes, I know we're a touch over time here. But, yeah, he's – so he's not <laughs> – my producer is not going to cut me off here. So there was a uh, piece in Atlantic Magazine, you may have noticed recently, a Brown University professor named Emily Oster. She wrote for The Atlantic, the extremely left-winging communist The Atlantic. She wrote a piece basically saying we have to have, her words, a pandemic amnesty. We have to, because she talked about, oh, everyone got all mad at each other. Uh, she was a real mask Nazi and a vaccine Nazi, and now she's kind of realizing the vaccines don't work, the masks do nothing, and so let's just all say sorry and move along. And, I, and obviously a lot of pushback from people saying, no, someone more has to be accountable. So I want us to get back to healthcare freedom, but on firm footing about who's in charge, who decides what doctors can prescribe, who decides what patients are allowed to do in terms of seeking second opinions? I mean, is her amnesty thing a little bit much? Where there's lives lost, hospitalizations, and careers ruined, there needs to be investigation and justice, not amnesty. Amen to that. Okay, Dr. Peter McCall, I wish Thank we you. had more time. If people can read, I mean, I, I have read so much now today, and I don't know where I got it all from, but... Is there a place people can go to read more about what's happening? Go to PeterMcCulloughMD.com. That's my website. I just started a Substack about a month ago. It's wildly popular called Courageous Discourse. And we're going to keep people updated on this. Everybody has to step out now and have some conversations, some courageous conversations about personal civil liberties. I love that. The subject is Courageous Conversations. Courageous Discourse, yeah. Courageous Discourse. Okay, and your co-author with this book, John Leak, is, is also contributing there, right? Yes. Yeah, it is great. I, I somehow got on the list. Thank goodness I did. This is the book. You should still read it. You should definitely read it. Read at that blog uh, more about what they're thinking and talking about. And um, I'm going to be following this story very closely. Dr. McCullough, thank you for coming thank you. in. Thanks for having thank me. Thank you so much. 
Okay, folks, um, I have other stories, but we are out of time. I do want to encourage you tomorrow, which is Thursday. We always have our very special Thursday shows with an in-studio audience. Tomorrow we have Chad Jackson. He is one of the principals in the new documentary film, Uncle Tom 2, and he also is portrayed uh, and, and speaks in that film, writing really about their expression or description as cultural Marxism uh, attempting to divide America along the lines of race. So that is tomorrow at 3 p.m., uh, the following Thursday, uh, we have two more Thursdays after that, and then Thanksgiving. I'm not having a show on Thanksgiving, uh, but on the 17th, I have Kevin Freeman coming in, uh, enormous expert on ESG, financial things, and uh, on the other Thursday, there I do the math, now the 10th, November 10th, uh, we have, it'll be two days after our national elections, we have Seth Keschel joining us in studio. He is an extraordinary expert. Uh, he dives in uh, on election data and looks at trends, and he is very, he was one of the ones, by the way, who correctly predicted the massive election victory of Donald Trump in 2016, back when, you may recall, everyone talking about it thought that Hillary Clinton was going to win by 97% or something loopy. He said, nope, Donald Trump's got it. He had the numbers. He's going to be here to talk about the outcome. This will be on November 10th, so you want to tune into America Can We Talk the following three Thursdays. Great shows. Can't wait to talk to you then. And as I always do, I close the show by telling you why the stories we talked about today matter to you. And we only got to one of them. So the story we talked about today, uh, we had um, Elon Musk guiding philosophy is hard to discern. Um, his belief in freedom of speech and stance to uncensored Twitter is all to the good. Immediate and substantial post-Musk growth in Twitter followers among conservative leaders, um, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Donald Trump Jr., vividly illustrates the extent of pre-Musk censorship. Post-Musk disclosure of DHS portal connection with social media, which began with Obama, has grown as a tool to control what the American people can be allowed to know. If Musk can truly dismantle this portal and discredit the thinking that started it, watch out. Extent of leftist deep state manipulation and suppression of the American people is enormous, far beyond most Americans' comprehension just a few years ago. American reawakening may be more powerful and long-lasting than anyone now predicts. And that's the only slide I can do because we didn't get through all the stories today. I want to thank you for tuning in to America Can We Talk every Monday through Thursday at 3 p.m. Central Time. I do this show to speak truth about America because America matters. And I will talk to you next time. Can we talk truth about America? Can you hear